Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hi, this is uh, Rabbi Dunny speaking to you on the webyeshiva.org Facebook Live page where we are studying Moren Avuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. We are still in section 1, but we are in chapter 53. We are using the Pines edition, so uh, Ishlomo Pines uh, University of Chicago edition, so we are on page 119 in the text. We finished chapter 52 last week, and in chapter 52, the Rambam was discussing the different types of attributes that you can ascribe to anything uh, in trying to describe its contents or its makeup. And the Rambam looked at five different ways of t typifying or uh, giving attributes to an, to an existent being. And uh, in going through these five different types, the Rambam went from least appropriate to most appropriate in trying to describe God. And the, the, um, we will revisit some of these attributes that we learned about in the past chapter. Uh, we will touch upon them today. Because chapter 53 is what we would call a little bit more technical from a philosophical standpoint, what I felt would be helpful for you in trying to, uh, helpful for us in trying to get through the chapter is not to go through a line-by-line -line reading of the chapter, but rather to go through an outline of the chapter and make sure that we understand the structure of what the Rambam is trying to present to us. So to that end, if you'd like to open up another tab on your browser and go to the Facebook group Shi'ur in Morenavuchim, you can easily find the, uh, the outline for today in a PDF. The topic or the title that we've given for chapter 53 is why people ascribe intrinsic attributes to God. Now, this chapter is clearly the Rambam polemicizing against different thinkers of his time. And the two major audiences that the Rambam wishes, wishes to polemicize against are, number one, people of his own uh, nation, the Jewish people, who look into scripture and read the text very simplistically and draw from that that God possesses intrinsic attributes. And by intrinsic attributes, um, I think it's helpful for us just to recall what, what we've been discussing, that God uh, is, is certain components of being call an attribute. So for example, to say that God is alive means that God is intrinsically alive that God sees, or God has the faculty of seeing or hearing, means that intrinsically built in within God are the ability for God to cognize, understand, and to know, and to act, and so forth. 
So all of this, this is part of the Rambam's negative theology, where he says that there is no attribute which can be properly ascribed to God, because once you start breaking up God multiple attributes, his, his absolute unity, and, and therefore that's not an appropriate way of it's a very, very important error that must deflect. And, and it is erroneousness to ascribing corporeality. It's really where we are. And we're just going to read the first paragraph, or the first part of the first paragraph, inside, chapter 53. And here he's talking about his own countrymen who made a mistake by reading the text of Tanakh, seeing God described in a certain way and coming to the conclusion that God has intrinsic attributes. The reasons that led those who believe in the existence of the creator to this belief are akin to those that those who believe in the doctrine of his corporeality to that belief. With the, the same thing that led people to believe that God has some kind of physicality is also the same thing that brought them to believe that God has intrinsic attributes. For he who believes in this doctrine was not led to it by intellectual speculation, he merely followed the evidence of the texts of Scripture. And this is what the, the, the wording of Tanakh This is also the case with regard to the attributes. For inasmuch as the books of the prophets and the revealed books existed, which predicate qualifications of him may he be exalted, he was believed to possess attributes. If you do a very literal, literal reading of how God you are led to in, intrinsic attributes. Um, the people in question have, as it were, divested God of corporeality, but not of the modes of corporeality, namely the accidents, I mean the aptitudes of the soul, of which are qualities. And the Rambam here if we wanted to sort of describe the Rambam in this way, that the, you, there, as he mentioned in previous chapters, there are ways to misuse language by saying itself um, contradictory, self-contradictory. Yes, if you believe that God is non-corporeal, you cannot at the same time believe that God has attributes that are only applicable to beings that are subject to being composite and being broken down into multiple parts. Once you acknowledge that God is completely non-corporeal and is completely unitary, then these kinds of attributes that you would normally apply to a human soul can no longer be applied to God. And this is really where I feel that um, we should really try to break down the chapter now and go a little bit outside, go off the text, and we'll be able to present to you what we mean uh, if you take a look at the handout. So therefore, Section number one of this chapter, we divide this chapter into six sort Tanakh itself, he says, when read simply, implies attributes just as it implies corporeality. But to divest God of corporeality while still maintaining other attributes is a mistake in that one ascribes to God human attributes when he really possesses none. And this is why the Rambam repeats this teaching from that the Torah speaks 
using human language, using language that is accessible to the human mind and which describes God in human terms, but really is not meant to be taken literally. The Torah's objective in ascribing attributes such as knowing, seeing, hearing, etc. is to indicate perfection, but not true attributes. And therefore, it's lesaberita to enable us to try and associate with God in some way, but it is not truly definitive of what God really is. The next part of the Rambam is where he discusses what some people believe not based on Tanakh anymore, but based on uh, Greek philosophy. There is a concept in Neoplatonism called emanationism. Emanationism is the theory which basically says that there is this unitary divine force that is able to emanate from itself a whole multiplicity and diversity of creation. Platonic thought addresses, which is the uh, one of the major uh, issues that it addresses, is how is it that a completely unitary being, which is the source of all of existence, can be responsible for diversity and multitudinousness um, if that unitary being emanate that which is most resemblant to that unitary being. How can a unitary being be responsible for both black and white? How can a unitary being be responsible for both good and evil? These, this, this questioning was, is what led many people to believe in a duality of deities. That's what Manichaeism and Zoroastrianism is ultimately based upon the belief that you see opposites existing in this world where there's no unitary source, there must be a dualistic source, or a more than just two sources, multiple sources, and that's what that's what idolatry. Is. But the Rambam's point says is that philosophically, using the Neoplatonic model of emanationism, where there's a it describes a unitary God emanating multiple effects, and that does not compromise the unitariness of the emanator, okay? This concept is true not only of God, but of other beings. And the Rambam brings an example from a, a, an element, the element of fire. And he says, fire is one element. It, is, it has one feature, one primary feature, in that, it, in that it emits heat. So you would say, if something is completely unitary, then it should only have one effect on all of the things that it encounters. But the reality is, is that fire has multiple effects depending upon the recipient, depending upon the object with which heat interacts. So therefore, fire blackens, it can char things, it bleaches. So for example, if you leave a colored piece of fabric out into the sun, the heat and the light of the sun will eventually lighten the fabric, so it does the exact opposite of, of charring things. Or, let's say, for example, a lies in the sun and their skin becomes darker. But if you put a on, it becomes lighter. Number three, makes things, improves the quality of something which was previously raw and now is cooked. But number four, it does 
when you subject something to heat incorrectly, burns the object and does not make it actually edible, but Number five, heat or fire will melt things. If I take a stick of butter and I put it in the fire, it'll melt. And at the same time, if you take an egg and you boil it, the egg will harden. So you see that fire has multiple diverse and often opposite effects on different objects, but that does not mean that the fire itself has a multitudinous or diverse nature. The fire is unitary. It is only the recipient that, depending upon the different kind of recipient, the fire will have a different, different effect. The Rambam uses this analogy for God as well, and he says that if this applies to inanimate elements, then it certainly applies to sentient beings, human beings, and it certainly Now this is a very interesting idea that is remarked upon not only by Neoplatonic philosophers, but Chazal find this uh, between the analogy between God and fire as well. The Torah says, Ki Hashem Elokecha Ish Ochelahu, that consuming fire, and God appeared to in the guise of a burning bush, connects himself to fire, and the, according to the Rambam and other thinkers, it is in this sense. We refer you to the bottom of our sheet where we quote the Kliakar commentary to the in the book of Devarim, and he quotes the Sefer Ha'akedah, which is one of the medieval commentaries, which is quite lengthy, which is why we quote for you the Kliakar here, and he says, when God says, hayom, Behold, I am placing before you today that is used in the verb, the Kliakar, is an allusion to the fact that God and his Torah are like the brightness of the day, are like sunlight. And he explains that that just like the sun is unitary, and it only has one effect, which is that it provides light and heat, it has multiple effects depending upon the recipient, it melts wax, it hardens an egg. blackens the face of a worker who works out in the sun. But it whitens a piece of fabric. And all of these different effects are not because the sun is multitudinous, but rather because the is different in each one of those cases. Similarly, when God is the source of both blessing and curse to humankind, it is not because God is multitudinous in any way, but God is completely unitary, but is responsible for different effects. Let us move. Question number three in this chapter is people generally ascribe to God, the intrinsic attributes of, and this is using, um, uh, th this is basically saying that from a philosophical point of view, that many religious philosophers conclude that God must have three intrinsic God has knowledge, Hebrew, ability, he has power, yecholet, right, and or ratzon. These three attributes according to the Rambam, are a mistake to ascribe to God, but many people come to this conclusion 
um, uh, Rambam will explain why people come to these conclusions. Uh, to, it would be a mistake to ascribe these to God because it would imply a simplicity or multitudinousness within God, and that is unacceptable. Now, and here he's polemicizing against a different group of religious thinkers. Previously, he was polemicizing against his fellow Jews who read Tanakh too, too literally, over And here he's polemicizing against some of his time, which are Islamic philosophers who seek to reconcile Islam with uh, Greek philosophy. And he says that he made a mistake. Um, and that mistake is, and he actually, on the top of page 121, he quotes a sentence that was famous, I guess, in his time from a certain colossal group of thinkers. He possesses power because of his essence. He possesses knowledge because he is living because of his essence, and he, he possesses will because of his essence. And the Rambam says that this is put a... Um, square peg in a round hole. It's just you are trying and insist that God is a unitary being and you are at the same time trying to ascribe to him some essential characteristics or attributes and it's just not going to work. Um, number four, uh, uh, part number four in the Rambam, an analogy from man's unitary rationality emanating multiple products to God's unitariness, unitariness emanating multiple effects, they are descriptions. In other words, the Rambam is, um, is pointing out that the human being possesses one rational faculty, but it is made up of many different parts. He, man has a rational faculty, and as, as we, he writes on, on page 121, through it, he acquires the sciences and the arts. Through the same faculty, he sews, carpenters, weaves, builds, has a knowledge of geometry, and governs the city. Those very different actions, however, proceed from one simple faculty in which, in which no multiplicity is posited. Now, these actions are very different, and their number is almost infinite. I mean, the number of the arts brought forth by the rational faculty. I accordingly should not be regarded as inadmissible in reference to God, may he be magnified and honored, that the diverse actions proceed from one simple essence in which no multiplicity is posited and to which no notion is superadded. Every action of the books of the deity, in other words, when you and you see different attributes, is therefore an attribute of his action and not an attribute of his essence. And therefore, you should not get bogged down in the uh, implication of multiplicity within God from the Psukim. If you recall back from chapter 52, which we learned last week, we pointed out that the fifth of the five attributes that the Rambam says are acceptable to ascribe to God are actually can say that God is responsible for certain creations, and that is a way of attributing God with certain attributes. There's nothing inaccurate about that because you're not describing God innately or essentially, but rather you're describing how God affects things that, that are created by him in the world. And therefore, whenever you find in Tanakh a description of God, it is rather a description not of God inherently, but rather of what God does 
God does in creation. Also, says the Rambam, it is that it is metaphorical and is merely just describing absolute perfection, as he had mentioned before. There accordingly is not, as these people believe, an essence composed of diverse notions, for the fact that they do not use the term composition does not abolish the notion of composition with regard to the essence possessing attributes. In other words, once again, don't think that you can have your cake and eat it too. You cannot have a God that is comprised of multiple ideas or notions and still believe in a completely unitary God. So, the Rambam here is now going to describe what motivates philosophical thinkers to ascribe innate qualities to God. And this is section 5, it's, and this is the, an important idea that needs to sort of be grasped. Why do people feel a need to ascribe God's multiple attributes to him, to him inherently, to his innateness? The answer is, A, because if God's attributes are extrinsic to him, then one might misconstrue an attribute as affecting God himself as much as it affects things outside of him, namely his creation. So let me just explain what the motivation for the philosophical thinkers of the Rambam's time to ascribe inherent or innate attributes to God. And I guess the analogy that I would give is uh, if you have and the sun, um, the um, radiates light and it radiates heat and it radiates heat all around the earth happens to be the beneficiary of the sun's radiation of heat and light but the sun actually radiates heat and light all around it so that it affects not only the everything else that's out in space outside of the earth as well if someone was in a spaceship on the other side of the sun they would also benefit from the light and the heat of the sun. If the sun somehow inside the center of the earth, however, then the only being, the only existent planet that would benefit from the sun would be the earth, because the heat would be contained inside the earth, not external to the earth. And this, if you just want to use that analogy just for a second, to help us what Rambam is getting at. The Rambam's point is that there are certain philosophical thinkers who believe that if you say that God has only extrinsic attributes, things that are external to him, like the fact that he is knowing and that he is a being of will, that he is a creator, a seer, and a knower, and so forth, those attributes, if they are outside of God's essence, then they are like the sun that is outside of the earth. And therefore, just as much as the sun illuminates to the entire cosmos that are around it, the sun also radiates upon the earth itself, right? And therefore, it could imply that God's attributes actually affect God. That would be a misnomer. It would be the ultimate misnomer to say that God has an attribute of being a creator, and therefore, just like God creates things outside of himself, he also has a creative effect upon himself. That just like God is a knower of all that exists, he also is a knower of himself. So the Rambam, in the very, I know this is a very abstract way of thinking, and it's certainly not the way that you and I would think, but that's the way the Rambam says, this is why people ascribe uh, an intrinsic attributes to God, 
they place the suns, as it were, inside the earth. They place all of these attributes inside of God to him so that these attributes become no longer capable of being reflexive or acting upon God. Um, this, but this would be a mistake akin to suggesting that God, and, that, and that's the reason why they make this mistake, is because they wish to avoid the idea of God affecting himself in some way. God is the effector but is not affected, and the only way to make God only the effector and not affected himself is by placing the attributes and embedding them within God himself and not having them extrinsic to God. So then the Rambam writes that the four attributes that are contained within Tanakh that most people mistakenly agree are intrinsic to God are the same attributes that he quoted in the name of the Kalamists, that number one, God is living, that God is able, he is Yachol, God is knowing, he is Yodea, and God is a being of will, he is a Rotzeh. They believe in this intrinsicality because of the aforementioned argument that God cannot affect himself. And therefore the Rambam wants to point out, it's not just that people believe that uh, God is a non-corporeal being and as such he, uh, he must uh, possess intrinsic attributes, there can be nothing extrinsic to God, but they, they do so because of this philosophical argument that I've just presented. But he says then that none of these four attributes can be described as reflexive. God does not know himself or exercise his own power upon himself. Rather, these attributes describe how God affects his creations. Despite the good intentions of those who describe these attributes as intrinsic, but are rather relational to his creations, they, these, things are, these attributes are not intrinsic to God, but rather describe the relation that God has with the things that he creates, or merely reflective of his actions. These are the, these are the types of attributes 4 and 5 that we learned about in last week's chapter, as we discussed in the previous chapter, explaining the last two of the types of five attributes. This ultimately removes multiplicity from God if we remove attributes completely and just say that these attributes are, are indeed extrinsic to God in the sense that they really they don't really describe things that God can do to himself, but rather the way that God relates to the rest of his creation or the way that God acts upon creation. Um, and finally, the Rambam says that some attributes found in Tanakh may also merely be indicative of God's perfection and are not meant to be understood literally in any sense to be explained in a later chapter. And here the Rambam is referring to what we will see in chapter 59, just a, a few weeks from now, uh, six chapters from now. The bottom line is, I guess, of this chapter is that the Rambam is trying to uh, uh, entertain or contend with some of the thinkers of his time who based on philosophical arguments conclude that God does have intrinsic attributes as a way of avoiding the possibility that God's attributes could act upon himself instead of just acting upon other creation uh, upon creation but indeed says the Rambam the, the God is divested of any attributes this again is the emphasis of his negative theology and therefore it is best to either understand these attributes as relational to creation or merely metaphorical, just really describing God as a completely perfect being, and the terms alive, knowing, able, and willing 
are terms which describe perfection in the human mind, the human uh, notion of what perfection means. So this is, in a nutshell, what chapter 53 is all about. I don't think we should dwell any more time on this chapter, and we will continue Bezrat Hashem next time with chapter 54. Wish you a good day.